You're about to listen to Unorthodox, a podcast on which occasionally bad language is used. So be forewarned. This has been your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by no Stephanie Butnick, who is elsewhere, no Leah Leibowitz, who is a different elsewhere, but by our producer, Josh Cross. How are you, Josh? I'm all right, Mark. You? I'm doing great. Uh, We also have a Jew of the Week. The Jew of the Week this week is the legendary documentary filmmaker Frederick Wiseman, who sat down with Leah Leibowitz to talk about the art of making documentaries and also about Wiseman's newest documentary himself. And then the Gentile of the Week, this is taken from our Cleveland Live show. We recorded this in Cleveland. Terry Stewart, who is a truly fascinating Gentile. I mean, fascinating human being as well. He is the former head of Marvel Comics, but Also, interestingly, he is the past president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. So he sat down with us at the Cleveland Live Show and talked about his long career in basically the funnest jobs that a child could ever want to have as a grown-up, comic books and rock and roll. But before we get to that stuff, um, Josh, we have some really, really interesting news of the Jews, and you're here basically to to update us. You've been been keeping an eye on the NOTJ, the news of the Jews. Uh, So first update... Uh, is about Sneaky White. This is the California prisoner who started this statewide prison college system that basically gave associates and bachelor's degrees to hundreds of California prisoners over the years. He finally seems to be on the verge of getting released thanks to journalism done by Jay, the San Francisco area Jewish newspaper, written by the reporter Alex Wall. And Alex was a guest of our show a few weeks ago. She was talking about the Sneaky White case, this remarkable Jewish inmate who has brought college educations to so many people uh, after being incarcerated for a murder that he committed a few decades ago. And what's the deal? Is he is he actually on the verge of being released now? I know that the parole board recommended him for release, but it wasn't quite yet a done deal. So here's the deal. And Alex... She, we were emailing, and she wanted to make sure we got it exactly right, so we didn't mess anything up. So the letter, there was a letter sent by the state supreme court of California to Governor Jerry Brown, okay, recommending, as required by Article Five, Section Eight of their California Constitution, that the governor grants a pardon, which is to say, a big court told Jerry Brown set him free. And they're just waiting for him to do it. It's sitting on his desk. Okay, so it's now like cleared this other hurdle. Governor Brown, who's, you know, a liberal guy and he likes setting people free and and he's going to do it. And, you know, we will keep people updated. Our big hope, of course, is uh, to go out to California and and be there, if not for the actual release, you know, soon thereafter. But we want to follow the release of James Sneaky White back into society. It certainly seems, based on Alex Wall's reporting, that he's earned it, that this is overdue, and uh, that will be one Jew we are happy to see liberated from the penal system, right? So so stay tuned for that. Before we move on, I, w- I want to read something, a letter, but it's not a letter to us, it's Sneaky's mailbox. And it's a, a letter that one of our listeners in the interim actually sent him cool. uh, anonymously, and you'll see why. What he writes is, Dear Reb James, or is it Reb Sneaky? I heard Alex Wall interviewed on the Unorthodox podcast this morning, and this evening I read her story on you from the spring. I was quite moved by her depiction of you and of your work all these years. I'm writing anonymously because I work in a field that is tangentially connected to the DOC. That's the Department of Corrections. But I have for 25 years been in this field as a quiet advocate to bring the concepts of correction to corrections, to reintroduce rehabilitation as a goal of our correctional system. The pendulum has swung way too far in the direction of vengeance and retribution, 
and the system, if not many of the people, are, is so clearly racially driven as to be unconscionable, if not unconstitutional. We have forgotten our Dostoevsky in our haste to seek guaranteed safety, which is, of course, ridiculous. There is no safety. From dust we all came, and to dust we all return. I am sincerely hopeful that you win your release, but I am amazed by the grace with which you have lived your life. Thank you for being who you are, and I hope we all live to see the day when people are not judged by the worst moment of their lives. And just know that Sneaky was so touched by this letter, that that's why I have it, because he sent it on to Alex to then send it to us. Sneaky, know that we're with you, and we're going we're gonna to stick by your case. Um, speaking of cases, here's a case in News of the Jews of somebody who was never tried in a uh, in a, an actual court of law, but has been tried in the court of public opinion. This is a very interesting case that came came across our radar screen in the last week. It's about a guy named Trayvon Free, who's a comedian and a comedy writer and a TV producer. Uh, he has worked on, among other shows, the recent HBO show Camping, which is the new Lena Dunham creation, Lena Dunham from from Girls. And um, okay, Josh, what what happened exactly? Somebody dug up some old anti-Semitic tweets of his from like 10 years ago. All right. So apparently he got into it a little bit with Ben Shapiro, of all people. This right wing journalist, Ben Shapiro, right? They were arguing over something about uh, Beto O'Rourke or God knows what. And shortly thereafter, some people who followed Ben Shapiro dug up these tweets from almost a decade ago. He's 33 now. He was 23 at the time. And he was making some offensive tweets. There's no question they were offensive. Then HBO sends out a press release saying he's no longer affiliated with us. We don't do any work with him. And it seems like his career is kind of, you know, going to have some major setbacks. To be fair, these tweets were horrible. Like, what were some of these anti-Semitic tweets that Trayvon Free tweeted out a decade ago? I can't even believe there's been Twitter for a decade, but I, right. I guess I guess there has been. So what are some of the tweets? Well, you know, back April 5th, uh, 2010, he said, got got cut off in traffic by a Jew, WWHD, what would Hitler do? Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and the Hitler thing seems to be a theme. He's like, how come no one ever channels their inner Hitler anymore? Let's remember he was younger. Um, and, and you can see that there's some kind of attempt to be funny. Uh, in particular, there's the uh, happy 122nd birthday, Hitler. It's a good thing you're not around to see how much you motivated the Jewish community to run everything. That's like a kernel of a stupid joke that then gets does three backflips and ends up a truly horrible joke and anti-Semitic and offensive. It's Yeah, it's like a bad comic early in his career on his worst day. They're not borderline, right? There's there's some sometimes people use stereotypes. Comedians use stereotypes all the time. And sometimes, you know, you can see, OK, they were really just trying to be funny and they crossed a line accidentally. These are really, you know, you know, it's terrible, right? Not funny at all. But but Josh, uh, you went and 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 talked to him, didn't you? Yeah, um, we reached out to him and he was more than willing to talk to us. And we had a great conversation. So here it is. As a representative of the world's quote-unquote leading Jewish podcast, I, I should let you know that we do come from a fine tradition of really enjoying offensive jokes. And so what I really want to ask is, does it kill you that the offensive jokes you got in trouble for aren't really that funny? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, they definitely aren't funny. I mean, it that part honestly didn't even bother me. I mean... Even if they if they were funny, I still wouldn't feel very different <laughs> than I have in the last like few days. Um, yeah, like based on what 
being a comedian and being a comedy writer and and trying to, in any like poor attempt to be funny, yeah, I would have loved if they would have actually been funny from a comedic, like personal standpoint. How did you first hear that the story was coming? Did he reach out to you first? How did that play out? Realistically, what was your impression of the incoming shitstorm before it really happened? It wasn't even the, the journalist who found it. It was actually Ben Shapiro and his Twitter people. He had tweeted at me that morning about a Beto, like Ted Cruz thing I posted. And I responded to his tweet with what I thought was a very factual response. <laughs> and he didn't reply. It's just the next thing I knew, my manager texted me. And another friend of mine texted me to check out my Twitter. And I saw like Cernovich and all these people's names. So I was like, okay, I figure something's happening. And then <laughs> I called my manager. He started telling me about the tweets. And it was so unbelievable to me because... It just sounded like something I would have never tweeted. And so if it weren't for the fact that he had links, I would have thought they were fake just because I just did not, like in my mind today, I cannot conceive of myself having done it, even though I did it. And so when I saw it, I was like, what the fuck, like, when did, okay. And I just sat with it and, and then I realized like, oh, okay, well, I mean, yeah, that definitely happened. And I was just like, really, really disappointed and, and hurt. I mean, hurt disappointed in myself. And I, I apologized to my manager and I apologized to my agents. And then I wrote an apology and posted it on Twitter. I know that if I'm looking at my tweets from nine years ago and, and, and you were what, 24, 25-ish? 23. It, listen, I, I can personally say I was a royal asshole at 23. Is it really that that wasn't you? Or was it just we joke from a different place and it was a different time? Because it's sort of a little of both. No, I'm not saying at all it wasn't me. I'm saying in the moment, because like being 33 years old now and being such a different person, I just didn't recognize it. It felt so foreign to me because I'm just not that person. However many years you wanted my Twitter from today back and you, you, it will be a long time before you find anything not either a satirical joke about a news story or just straight up advocacy for some issue or person or group. This is what my life has been like for so many years now that seeing that was just so like, I was just such a different person. There's a point at which we all sort of grow out of our youthful indulgences and that stuff. What do you think was the inflection point for you between the person that tweeted a bunch of things about Hitler and the person who is appalled by that now? I don't know where the breaking point is between Twitter comedy and when my when I actually had like a personal change. I would imagine it was when I started to actually get work as a comedian, like touring and performing and just not relying on Twitter so much for attention or trying to get attention. And it wasn't a thing that was so tied to who I was as a person. I think that's why it fell away so easily and so quickly. It's like a drop off. It's like a stark change in how I tweeted. So I, I feel like I don't know. I can't pinpoint a moment. But definitely around that time, around 24, 25, was, was like things were just different. And I started to become more vocal about issues and, and things like that. Most of your jokes were very, they weren't even like anti-Semitic in the broad category. It was very Hitler specific. What was it that sort of drove that to be your target of the jokes? 
I honestly couldn't speak for my myself then because I just don't remember my mindset then. But I can say, as uh, a history buff, I'm generally just obsessed with World War II and and, and the war. So I watch a lot of like Hitler war documentaries and, and things like that. Just from a purely historical standpoint, that is a period of time I I own a lot of. World War II documentaries and things like that. And I I would imagine that probably had something to do with it. Right. I was not obsessed with Hitler in the way maybe some of the people who tweet at me are, <laughs> but very much from a, <laughs> a war historical learning about history standpoint. You've worked and still do work with some prominent Jews. Did you reach out to any of them personally after this hit? And how did that go? Actually, a lot of people reached out to me first to see how I was doing and to offer the support in any way they could. I personally didn't reach out to anyone specifically just because I didn't want it to feel like I was like reaching out to anyone who I knew who was Jewish in this moment of like crisis, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, any type of like, please help me kind of way, like, right. and just having yet because it's still so, so new and so like recent. Part of me was hoping you would talk to Lena Dunham only because she might have some insight after her Odell Beckham Jr. fiasco. Actually, I did talk to Lena. She reached out to me. Wonderful. Uh, did, did, did you guys compare notes? <laughs> I mean, she she offered just pure support and she's like obviously she knows what it's like to be in these type of situations and she's like I'm just like you know I'm here for you if you need anything and it was yeah it was just pure love just pure like just be there I guess where do you feel like we're at culturally with dealing with this stuff I mean between anti-semitism everywhere and racism and me too and all the stuff that were people people are genuinely legitimately upset about stuff that people have said years ago or otherwise you know, the flip side of that is if Sam Kinison ever had Twitter or Lenny Bruce back in the day, they would have been in a lot of trouble many years after. And so how do how does this affect being a comedian and a writer? How does this affect the way you approach the world and so on? I mean, I think as a comedian and writer, we should definitely take responsibility for whatever we've written or said while also acknowledging where we are at the time that it's being discussed. If like Kennison tweeted something crazy in 1991 and he was a very different person from whatever he tweeted in 2009, I think it should be examined in that, in that context because I'm very aware of the level of anti-Semitism that's been on the rise in America the last like two or three years. And I've been very vocal about it. When I look at the awful jokes I tweeted and I look at like what I do now and who I am now, it's like, it still matters and it still should be discussed. But I think in the context of who I am now, if I had said those things last week, I think we'd be having a very different discussion. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Josh, that was a really interesting conversation. It's, I will say, listening to him now, uh, it's hard not to like the guy. He sounds 
genuinely contrite. I believe him when he says he doesn't even remember this stuff. I, I think he may have had a, a deeper anti-Semitic animus back then than he is willing to admit now, because again, these jokes aren't funny. They sound like somebody who's been listening to a little too much Farrakhan. <laughs> I don't know. What, what what do you think? I go back to something I said to him also, which was 23-year-old me was a dick. Right. I don't hear anything in it, especially with watching, because I went and looked before I talked to him, and he does, you know, he wasn't just talking about it when he was talking to me. He really does a lot of advocacy stuff around race, around sexuality and other things. And, and I got to believe this was a 23-year-old, you know, there are people who are hardcore Ayn Rand reading libertarians in college that wind up crazy socialists later in life. They're, at at yep. 23, you're still a kid. Yeah. And you know what? Like, that doesn't mean it's right. And right. it sounds like he reached out and made amends to people in his life who he thought might have been offended. I don't feel like he owes every last living Jew a an apology because, frankly, his tweets 10 years ago, while they put bad stuff out into the atmosphere, into the ether – like he didn't he didn't harm me. He didn't harm you. Uh, there are people who actually do terrible things. There are people who 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 punch people when they're 23. There are people who sexually harass people. There are people who, uh, you know, really target Jews with anti-Semitic hate. Um, this sounds like someone who said who said stupid shit and unfortunately lives in the age when you have uh, a Twitter microphone to say it to the world. Right. And and receipts, as the kids say. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Live shows, live shows, live shows. January 15th, 2019, we will be in Washington, D.C. This is our second show ever there. That was a live show we did a couple years ago. This time we'll be back as guests of the Washington Hebrew Congregation. So that's a free show. If any of you want tickets for that, go to Washington Hebrews website or check out our Facebook group and get your free tickets. Thursday, the 31st of January, we will be at the Lawrence Family JCC in San Diego. Guests to be announced. Friday, the 1st of February, we're going to be doing something in Los Angeles. That's to be determined, but stay tuned and we'll let you know what's up with that. And Saturday, February 2nd, we will be at the Stroom JCC in Seattle doing a joint show with Dan Savage and his Savage Love podcast. So come on out, Seattle, and see us. Our Jew of the Week this week is the legendary documentary filmmaker Frederick Wiseman. He's 88 years old. He's been making movies since 1963. His latest is Monrovia, Indiana. And our own Liel Leibowitz jumped at the opportunity to sit down with, with Frederick Wiseman. Uh, Liel is a, we're all fans here. Liel is what might be called a super fan. And um, if you want to hear some true adolescent fanboy gushing, listen to Liel sitting down with Frederick Wiseman. Thank you. 
how did you come to Monrovia? How did you come to the idea of making a, a well, film about I, small town I, America? I wanted to make a movie in the Middle West. And so I thought a small town in the Middle West would be an appropriate subject. Uh, I've worked, I previously worked in 17 states, but the, the, the only thing I'd done in the Middle West is a public housing project in Chicago. Right. So uh, I, I wanted to do something that, you know, wasn't in a big city. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a law professor in Boston. And I told her I wanted to do a small town in the Middle West. And she said she had a friend who taught at the University of, University of Indiana Law School whose family had lived in the same small town in Indiana for six generations. And by chance, I had been invited to show some movies and talk in Bloomington, which is the site of the University of Indiana. So I called up this uh, Indiana University law professor and told him what I was interested in. He said, come out a day early and I'll take you to uh, Monrovia, which is you know, the town my family has lived in. Population 1,300? Right. I've, I've seen various figures from 1,000 to 1,300. Uh, and so I did that. We went there, and he introduced me to his cousin, uh, who was a local undertaker. <laughs> so she, you know, she knew everybody. Right. By, uh, by default. Uh, and uh, she was a very charming woman, and she said she would help me. Uh, so I then, I looked around Monrovia for a couple hours that day, then went back to France, uh, where I've been living, and... Uh, she then got in touch with uh, the head of the school board and the head of uh, the town council and the police department and the fire department and some of the owners of the restaurants, you know, generally some of the people who ran the places that I might be interested in filming. And they all said, okay. And then when she told me who she called, I then called them from Paris and talked to them a bit and uh, then showed up about six weeks later and started shooting. Now, did you were you attracted to 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 the Midwest because you said, well, it's time to figure out in the, in the wake of the twenty sixteen elections to figure out what's going on in these towns? Well, or? I you know I mean I'm I'm certain that the the Trump's election had something to do with it, but not all to do with it uh, because I I I never start a film with a thesis. And I didn't start this with a thesis that I was going to make a movie about. I mean, the only thesis I started was that a uh, small town in the Midwest might make a good movie, uh, or I hoped it would make a good movie. Um, and I, I assumed I would pick up some traces of current politics. But interestingly enough, there were no, I overheard no direct conversations about politics, either federal or state, when I was there. How is it possible for you to maintain this um, royally unexcitable uh, emotional state? I mean, so many of us, most of us, you know, go completely crazy. And, and yet I believe you, because I've watched a movie several times, that you came with nothing more than a thesis Let's go to a town in the Midwest. How do you, how do you how do you do that well, as an I, artist? I, you know, I like making movies. I'm also very patient, uh, and I'm very curious, and I'm not uh, I'm not judgmental. I mean, so, at least uh, well, I mean that's complicated as to what constitutes judgmental. But I mean, I'm not. 
I think I try to deal with people in an even-handed way. Well, I think that comes across in the film because you know there are several very funny moments in the film, yeah. which I think probably don't. I don't think your films get enough credit for being really funny. Well, good. I mean, I think a lot of them are quite funny. Yeah, but but you're not at any point condescending or or cruel to them. You're just showing the innate humor of a situation. Well, like, I I think that's right. I mean, if I were to mock the residents of Monrovia or, or the people in any of my films, I would only be making a fool of myself. Uh, I mean, on the other hand, some of the situations in all the movies, you run across situations that are inherently funny. Uh, and and they're not funny because I edited the material in such a way as to force the humor. Uh, they're funny in themselves. Because if you watch a, uh, and, and I think what, a 50th anniversary uh, ceremony of some member in the Masonic Lodge uh, with all its, you know, regalia and and pomp and circumstance, that that's a hilarious scene. And so, when you arrive from from Paris to Monrovia, a, a very different set of pace, do you require some time to acclimate, or have you been at this so long that you no, just I mean, press I know. record? I, well, I mean, I I think it's a function not just because I've been at it so long. I mean. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, when I'm in Paris, I have one kind of life. And when I'm in Monrovia, I have another kind of life. When I'm in Mon- Monrovia, I'm there to make a movie. Most uh, of, I've, I've been a very big fan for very long. So I, I know a little bit about your process. A lot of, of the film is put together in editing, right? Well, the film is put together. Right. But, but what happens when you shoot? When you're there in Monrovia, do you make mental notes of that be a good sequence to go in in that place or do you just no i mean obviously when you get a good sequence you remember it uh and i keep notes uh of you know pretty much what we shoot but i don't really have any time i don't really think about structure at all during the shoot because there's no time Uh, and i i and to think about structure you know, requires uh, time and, and, and uh, to think. Right. Uh, and the shooting is much more uh, instinctive. Uh, my job during the shooting is to figure out what to shoot and, and you're always ready to get it. I mean, because in making these movies, you know, you come across, if you're lucky and have some good judgment, you come across sequences that are funnier or sadder or more tragic the things in great literature, and I'm not writing them, I'm not creating them, I'm recognizing them, uh, and that's my job. Uh, and then I'm, in the editing, I'm figuring out how to use them in constructing a dramatic narrative. Do you pay any attention to news, current events, when you, when you work on editing? Does that trickle into your... Oh, well, I mean, I, I'm an avid, I mean, I'm a news junkie, so I, I read the paper, or I read the Times Online, and because I can't sleep at night, I listen to a variety of podcasts. So, you know, I, I think at least I have some idea of what's going on. But you don't, you try to keep it out of the editing room, or do you well, sort of I mean, play with the It's not that formal. I'm certainly aware of the national political scene and what Trump is doing, but I'm making a movie about Monrovia. I've read some of the reviews, uh, which, uh, first of all, I was delighted that all of them praised the film because I, I share in, in this praise, but also a lot of them took uh, note of the recurring scenes in the town 
town council meeting, right? Uh, which are several and and you know wonderful and moving and sort of amazingly poetic. First of all, how how many? Because uh, the very first scene that we see is a discussion about you know people moving in from outside. Uh, was that just something you've lucked into? Uh, yeah. Right. I mean, I had no. I mean, the town council meeting ran, let's say, two hours. Uh, so when you go to something like that, you shoot the whole two hours, uh, because you. I mean, the worst thing you can do is try and anticipate what people are going to say and do. So when I go to a town council meeting, or when I went to the the senior staff meetings in the New York Public Library, you shoot the whole meeting, uh, and that was one of the subjects that was discussed. Did and, you, and then, you know, and then I, uh, one among many, and then I chose to use it in the editing. And and do you take it now or do you take it then as a sort of uh, metaphor into outsiders uh, threatening the small town American way of life or? Well, I mean, certainly one of the, one or two of the people in the town council meeting uh, suggests that they don't want 150 new homes to be built because it's going to change the way of life of Monrovia. So that, I mean, that obviously raise, it raises that issue. I make no attempt in the film to resolve the issue. I show that it's an issue that exists for the residents of Monrovia. But you also resist the temptation of making a grand metaphor out of it. Well, yeah, I mean, you, the viewer, can make whatever you want of it. Let me ask you this question, which I've been thinking about a lot. I read an interview of yours from... I think several decades back, in which you said something like, I don't like the term cinema verite. It's right. a fancy, nonsense French term. What we do is may as well be fiction. We manipulate footage. What's the best way to watch a Frederick Wiseman film? Uh, awake and your eyes open. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not a problem because those images are, you know, insanely beautiful and the, the stories are very moving. But do you encourage um, us as viewers to watch Monrovia and think of it as metaphor? Do you encourage us to just enjoy this peek into a slice of life? Uh, would you like us to take away something else altogether? Well, yeah, you know the old uh, joke about the famous American philosopher Samuel Goldwyn? Uh, if you have a message, send a telegram. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, I would like... People to think about what it is they're seeing and the implications of it, and leave each one of us with our own subjective I mean, I, editing. I, work. I don't think it's up to me to say what the film is "quote unquote" about, because if I could say it in twenty-five words or less, I shouldn't have made the movie. <laughs> I mean, someone once asked me after a screening of Welfare, uh, which is uh, runs a little more than three hours first question after the screening is, what's it about? And I said, about three hours and seven minutes. Uh, uh. You've screened the movie in Monrovia. How did they take it? Well, they, they, I, had, I, I took over a multiplex one night, and there were three screenings, each a half an hour apart. And uh, I don't know, five or 600 people came. And so half the town. Half the town. <laughs> and they, you know, those that talked to me and I, with whom I talked afterwards seemed to like it. Was there ever any issue for them of mistrust? You were the East Coast Paris intellectual coming in. No, no, the people were extremely nice and very friendly and cooperative. And uh, they, they liked the idea. I mean, I, I didn't run into anybody who didn't 
like, you know, feel the movie was a good idea. There was only one person in Monrovia who didn't want to be filmed, and he had a, he had a good reason to not want to be filmed. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't. But, uh, Knowing that and, and having had the experience that you had, does that change the way you look at that part of the country? Are you sort of feeling that, well, you know, I kind of got that wrong. Uh, maybe I don't know what you thought about. Well, I mean, it dep- I try not to think in, in broad terms because I never, I don't know how to do it, you know, broad cultural terms or make broad statements about America, generalizations about American life. So, you know, I, I didn't have any uh, formulated opinions about the Middle West because, I mean, and because, I mean, it's quite a large slice of territory and, and lots of different kinds of people live there. You never bought into that, uh, you know, that now infamous Hillary Clinton uh, notion about, you know, bitter people clinging to their guns and God, or was that Obama's statement? No, I mean, that's a cliche. Uh, no, I didn't. And so you really came to it sort of just... Well, I came to it, I mean, I, I, I think I came to it with, with the feeling that I wanted to learn something about it, and I didn't know anything about it. Again, I am so deeply moved by your by your ability to to transcend this. If there's one thing I think that that connects, uh, you know, a thread that connects all of your movies is is really this, uh, you know, almost uncanny ability to to both observe and portray, uh, you know, humanity, people uh, as they really are. When you look right now at how fractious, at how violent, at how vile so much of our civic political discourse have become, does that does that depress you, or do you think it's a it's a phase? Do you? Well, I mean, does the current uh, political climate depress me? Of course. I mean, uh, we we have a president who's a psychopath, uh, and uh, I mean, if you look at the uh, American Psychiatric Association definition of sociopath <laughs> or psychopath, for each of those words, there are 10 major characteristics, and Trump fits them all. So uh, when you know, I can't help but be depressed by having someone who uh, appeals to the worst instincts of human nature, who has no knowledge of history, is, uh, uh, doesn't read the intelligence reports apparently compiled by his own agencies, uh, 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 is uh, is a bully uh, uh, and a dangerous one. Do you personally uh, buy the notion, or or have any uh, you know anything to do with the notion of uh, part of his ascent uh, being how people like the people in in Monrovia having been ignored for so long uh, by storytellers uh, who live here or in LA? Well, I mean, you know. It, you know, this whole issue of being ignored, I mean, I'm not sure I know what's behind that. For example, farmers aren't ignored. They get uh, soybean and corn farmers get these great subsidies uh, from the government. That's, that's not ignoring but them. But they're, they're rarely seen on, on your television or movie screen. Well, okay. But, I mean, in terms of their livelihood, uh, right. they're, they're not ignored. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, it's one of the, you know, things that a lot of people say, and I, I, I just don't know enough about what's going on to say how, how valid that is. I'm, I'm sure there's some validity to it, but, 
I mean, the, the whole issue of why somebody like Trump gets elected is an enormously complex one. And I, I mean, I, I wouldn't uh, try to utter some, you know, a banal explanation of my own for it. But you know that many people who go into see Monrovia probably do it with an anticipation that they will get the reason, the true reason for... Well, anybody thinks they're going to get the true reason about anything uh, <laughs> is in deep trouble. Uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Is there a subject that you've ever tried to, to film uh, that you just couldn't? I mean, uh, uh, because it was so difficult? Yes. No, no. I mean, there was one moment in Hospital, which is a film I did at Metropolitan Hospital in New York uh, in 1968, where a man who worked in the subway touched the third rail and all his nerve endings were burned and he was dying, but he wasn't in any pain and he was surrounded by his family. And they didn't have any objection to shooting. I decided not to shoot it. But in retrospect, it was a mistake because the issues that that scene presented were no different than all the other scenes in the emergency ward. Uh, that's, that's the only time that's happened. Do you have a dream project that if time, money, and other earthly constraints... The White House. The White House. This White House. Well, any White House, but certainly this one. Have you ever tried? No, because, I mean, there are too many national security issues. I mean, they, they, you know, some president might give permission to be around for the ceremonial aspects, but I, I don't think any president, Democratic or Republican, would let somebody sit in on uh, national security meetings and, or, or real political discussions. And I, and I understand that, but if you asked me if I had a dream subject, that would be it. I, I think I speak for... A lot of people, when I say that a Frederick Weissman movie about the Trump administration would be something I would pay a lot of money to see. Well, I'd pay a lot of money to get permission. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was our own Liel Leibowitz talking with documentary filmmaker Frederick Weissman a couple weeks ago. Weissman's new movie is Monrovia, Indiana. crew it is time for some pod biz tonight may 16th i'll be moderating a zoom conversation with rabbi sharon browse and shy held about each of their new books that's at 6 p.m eastern and the final event in my unpacking the book series with the jewish book council and the jewish museum this one's on zoom so no matter where you are i hope you can make it and tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. 
Okay, back to the show. As you know, we were in Cleveland a couple weeks ago, did an astonishingly fun live show at the Mandel Jewish Community Center of Cleveland, Ohio. Had a great time there. The people in Cleveland are drop dead, amazing hosts, and we are excited to think that we may get invited back there someday. Much love to Cleveland. Uh, Here is the interview we did with our Gentile of the Week in Cleveland. It's Terry Stewart, who has recently retired from his job running the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Our Gentile of the week is Terry Stewart. He was the longest running president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum in Cleveland, Ohio. He served from 1999 through the end of 2012. He is an active philanthropist and supporter of arts and culture, and we are so excited to have him here with us. I like this because we came from New York and here you are wearing all black and yeah. I feel very much at home. <laughs> I lived in New York, I learned well while I was there, so. When we call you an active philanthropist, does that mean you exercise a lot or like you're actually <laughs> giving money, you gave money away today? No, my, I hand my wallet to my wife and she, <laughs> she does all she can with it, so. So Liel was at your building, well, is it, does it still feel like you've been, you haven't done this for six years? And I'm curious. Do you, do you drive by longingly and think that the guy who took over after you is screwing everything up? Or like, what's your relationship? No, 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 no. When you no, move I, on, is it still home? Uh, you, you miss it. I mean, how can you not miss one of the greatest jobs in the world? And fortunately, I hired the guy that took over after me. So I feel very, very proud of that. So I miss it. Um, I, I, it's one of the great institutions of Cleveland, as all of you folks know here. And it's the marquee of Cleveland, among other things, besides the orchestra, the art museum, and the sports teams. So you seem like a pretty cool guy. When you have this job, do you feel like you need to be like very rock and roll, show up late, like stay out late? I don't know. Trash what, hotel Yeah, rooms. trash yeah. your office. Yes. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that and also do your job? Well, I'm gonna give you a serious answer because um, you may not have noticed I also had another very interesting job before this. Mm-hmm. I ran Marvel, Marvel Comics. You basically had the two jobs yes. in the world that I want most. You never. <laughs> that's it. If you have those jobs, you never have to grow up, grow old. You can grow up and old. But um, so I learned early on that you you can't wear that mantle of being cool and being one of them because you're not one of them. You're the guy that takes care of their world or their business or their stuff at the Rock Hall. So. Even though I might have dressed in all black and I go to a lot of shows, I didn't ever try to play that card. It's a really big mistake, a really big mistake. You have to be like the grown-up, basically. Yeah, more or less, yeah. The does steward. It, does it kill you, though? Like, you're hanging with, like, Springsteen and these guys. You'd be like, well, I'll just go back to my office and draw the profit and loss balance sheets or whatever. <laughs> Is it not a moment to be like, no, I want to be here at 4 in the morning? And well, like, just to hurt your feelings, sometimes they ask you to come along with them anyway. So, <laughs> Who... I have found, and I've interviewed, I think all three of us here have interviewed a lot of artists of various kinds, musicians, writers, something journalists do a lot. And I've had the experience very often of finding that they aren't very articulate about their work for a specific reason, which is their work says it all. In other words, if you want to know what Bruce Springsteen feels about the night, he has 12 songs about the night, (laughs) right? Um, And James Taylor has a lot of songs about New England. You know, there's certain, and that's where you go if you want to know what they think about things. So then when you ask them about it, they say, well... Listen to the music. Have you found in talking with, with so many musicians, are there some of them who are very, very articulate outside of their work? I mean, there's some of them who are real theoreticians or scholars or thinkers about lyrics or music or... 
surprisingly a large number of them. You may not catch them at those moments. You may not get them to open up to you. But if you've been to the inductions, ever heard the speeches that the people make in the inductions, and so many of the speeches are written by the artists themselves, and if you hear a Springsteen speech or a Bonnie Raitt speech, and you hear them uh, articulate not only what the music and the artist that they talk about means to them, or the history of the music, which they bring forward. They, they are, they, many of them are steeped in it, and one of the greatest Jewish rock and roll hall of famers of all time, and who would that be, gentlemen and lady? Dylan? Dylan, yeah. Mm, yeah. Dylan is a savant about this stuff. If you go back and see what he's stolen, taken, borrowed, etc., etc., it's amazing what he's pulled from. Going all the way back to, I'm from Mobile, Alabama, and it's a piece of sheet music. I'm from Mobile, Alabama. I mean, my dad is. Really? Absolutely. Yeah, we his should talk his, later. His father, his parents were divorced. His mom was from Pittsburgh, his dad was from Mobile. Absolutely. Small world. A wonderful city. Well, it's a piece of sheet music from 1917 called Stuck in Mobile with the Memphis Blues. Sure. So... Did Dylan make it up? Not exactly, you know. So it's, more of them are more articulate, you might say, but they're not going to be real talkers, and mm -hmm. particularly not to people off the street, even not to the guy at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, unless you have a topic that, you engage, that they want to engage you with. Mm -hmm. Robert Plant loves to talk about rockabilly and American music. So once he starts it with you, then you can open up and you get, you get that sort of... I was uh, hoping for a second that you say, like, gardening. <laughs> no. <laughs> so they don't call I him Robert Plant for Let me ask you a question, though. I think second only to the Secretary General of the United Nations, this is a job that involves dealing with different factions of people with very strong partisan feelings. And I know that there have been cases uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I'm thinking of one in particular, in which fans quite literally mobbed the building, right, demanding induction now. Kiss. You're done, kiss. That would be kiss. Mm -hmm. how, how, first of all, how do you handle those situations? Well, uh, there's no good way to do it. Um, the fact is that most of the artists that you can bring up that should be in do get in. And I tell the fans that, and they don't believe me. And over time, I'm right. I tell the story of the last day I was sitting in my office before I retired. I got a letter, and I, I learned at Marvel Comics where I answered every letter from every kid. And every letter I got from every you know, joker that wanted to yell at me about who's not inducted, I got a letter the last day that said, Dear Terry, written in crayon, you can imagine this, okay, Thank you for answering my dumbass letter uh, when you told me that Rush would get inducted. <laughs> and I told you I was never going to bring my children, all eight of them, to the Rock Hall until they were. And now I'm going to bring them. And I really appreciate you uh, sending it back to me. P.S. Do not answer this dumbass letter. So <laughs> that's, that's the kind of things that happen. So, so how you, does the process work? It's, like, it's like almost like the, the, the Pope, right? You all get together in this white smoke. And then, you know, Leonard Skinner is inducted? Pretty huh? close, pretty close. Um, there are roughly 40 to 60 nominees that people that nominate in a committee. They meet in the fall in September, and I was a member of that committee for 15, 14 years. Can you get us on that committee? No. <laughs> and nor would I even suggest it. <laughs> um, that is correct. Not after the way you're treating me here. <laughs> <laughs> we love you so much. Yes, I know you do. But, um, and that the list that comes out of that room, which is usually on 15, 16 uh, individuals or groups, is submitted to around 600 or 700 voters, the majority of which are the living inductees in the Rock Hall. And out of that comes anywhere from six to eight inductees every year. So there's been a lot of stories about who does what and who filters this and everything, but I can promise you in my time, the voting was legit. Uh, there were fist fights in the early days, as I understand it, I wasn't there. So 
It's, it's a very organized process. In your time, there were no heated discussion. People oh, saying, lots of heated discussions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you share some of them? Um, Phil Spector, you know, Phil Spector, who's in prison, right? Mm -hmm. um, and who did the obscenity? Astro did. As he stood up, no fucking way of the Ronettes ever fucking getting in here. That's what he said in the committee one day. But they got in anyway, so, you know. <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of things that would happen. Uh, or certain individuals remain nameless. Kiss will get, get in over my dead body. He didn't die yet, but they got in. So, you know, it's, it happens. So you know? I imagine you have to stay fairly objective, right, running this whole ship. I actually, you get to nominate three artists every year. And I spent almost every year nominating individuals or groups that I thought should be in that didn't get nominated or perhaps an artist that my wife was going to kill me if I didn't nominate <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, I honestly, honestly try to take that and go in that direction. And so is there ever someone who's gotten in that you were like, yes, that felt like it was yours? Um, uh, quite a few. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't uncommon that, that they got in. Um, or a moment in which you were particularly starstruck. I mean, you meet a lot of people, but was there one person that you met and felt like, oh, my God, I am now in the presence of X? Somebody I met like that? Yes. Oh, oh Paul McCartney. True. Paul McCartney. Yeah, Paul McCartney. Yeah. We're standing next to Bruce Springsteen, who had gotten in the same night, oh uh, <laughs> along with Billy Joel. So what can I tell you? You asked. The you trifecta. Asked me. Yeah. So You're like, happens? Billy, go, go get Bruce and Paul a drink, please. Brodems <laughs> are talking. So, he was very anti-Billy. So what happens So after, like, after they get through committee? How do people find out that they've been inducted? Well, they, they, they announced the list, uh, which they just announced a few weeks ago here. And then around the first or second week in December, the votes are released and you find out who's getting in. And there's also a few artists that get in uh, for what they now call the Excellence Award, which lumps in songwriters, uh, producers, directors, agents. Thing. So there's another category done by a committee. And is there like sort of like the Oscars, like for your consideration, billboard type things where people sort like of is there a campaign? campaign for yeah, themselves? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah they, you don't read about it much, but in fact, I used to tell... Uh, some of the artists that were nominated many times and never got in, you know everybody. Get on the fucking phone and call them and tell them to vote for you. <laughs> Seriously. That's, and that actually has worked on occasion if you really get the votes out from the people that you know. First of all, notice to my great delight that uh, there's just a lot of hip-hop in yep. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As so it should be. Do you, do you perceive rock and roll as just a, a state of mind or a kind of a broad cross-genre You'd have to do a podcast on this. I'll give you the short version. This music goes back to the 1840s. It's an African-American art form. The words and the, and the beats and a lot of the lyrics that happened in the 1800s in ragtime and blues still exist in hip-hop. You can trace them through books where, uh, where people that study this will show you that. It's just a river of music that continues to change and names, different names are attached to it. When Alan Freed coined the phrase rock and roll. He didn't make it. The term rock and roll goes back to 1923. It always meant sex. And when he coined it, he just chose a name to rebrand rhythm and blues. Uh, he didn't, it wasn't anything new. He just decided, he thought the term uh, rhythm and blues was too pejorative for the music he was playing on the radio. So he decided he'd call it rock and roll. And he talked about this river of African-American music that had been sort of disdained for so long. And he felt here was a chance for this to explode. And he gave it a new name. And that's well, the way it happened. I totally get that. But you must have some concern about drawing boundaries. I mean, you're not the country music, right? I mean, all of these genres are, have roots that go back at least 100 years. I mean, certainly that's true of bluegrass and, and, and in its country. But country the blue, and its bluegrass, bluegrass and country plays a big role in rock and roll. 
Right. But bluegrass, you get more into the Irish and the, the Europeans that came over as opposed to the African-American base, which is really the foundation for the most part of what we call rock and roll, rhythm and blues, rock, uh, hip-hop, all the above. Yeah, you do worry about it, but uh, there's also a lot of these artists that get in, whether it's um, like uh, Nina Simone this year, who's mm -hmm. African-American, but also more of a jazz singer, but mm -hmm. she influenced people. Sinatra has been nominated, has never gotten in, but was very influential in terms of uh, breathing and sure, the way he styled songs. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, so that comes up. So there's no, you can get in in a lot of different ways. When you were 12, which job would you have wanted more, Marvel Comics or rock and roll? Well, unfortunately, I'm so old that Marvel really didn't exist when I was 12. Liel, uh, Liel knew that, but... Uh, it, it, would well, have been, it would have been rock and roll. Uh, if I, I couldn't imagine either one of them, obviously. I've been blessed. But you were a huge comics fan and a huge music fan. Yes, I fan. was. Yes, yeah. always. Interesting. Interesting. Well, one of the traditions we have is we always allow the Gentile of the Week to ask us, a panel of internationally certified Jewish experts, a question <laughs> that... You may have. Several of my friends out there know how I'm going to go. <laughs> they so. can just imagine what I'm going to say. Um, yeah, let's talk about Jews for Jesus. Oh, let's. Yes. So your question is, Jews, the G Jews for Jesus, WTF? Yes. Okay. WW. Sound that bell over there J-F-J-D. Which, which of... TF. <laughs> Don't put that on a license plate, buttonick. Liel. I think you should represent us in this one. My feelings, I feel, are, are not compatible with the obscenity warning. So, <laughs> it is for your feelings that we have an obscenity warning, Leo. I, I think you should probably try to take this. So I, 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 will, I will answer this question fully and honestly and candidly, but I mean, can I ask you, what do you think, as, as someone who's not Jewish, they're not, they're not, you're not implicated in any way in what they're doing. Um, do you think you'd be offended if you were Jewish? Do you think you'd be, how do you think you... I mean, you know, I... Looking from the outside of just uh, that group, from what little I know about it, it's, it, they ask a question of, should the rabbis 2,000 years ago decided that he wasn't the Messiah, right? right. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And certain right. individuals who live today or have lived in this organization say, hey, I have a different idea. Right. So, I mean, I think most people here have some sense of what Jews for Jesus are. I'll just say that they, not all Messianic Jews are Jews for Jesus. Jews for Jesus are a particular group. It's like a particular denomination of what's more broadly called Messianic Jews, which are people of Jewish ancestry, identify as ethnically Jewish, but have come to Christ, but are born again Christians. And I guess what I would say is, you know, I've known some, we've actually had a couple on our show who are utterly sincere and I honor their beliefs as being you know, truthful and sincere and coming from a good place as I honor those of fellow Jews and Muslims, secularists, atheists, of course. Um, that said, um, there's something squishy about them, to coin a term. Uh, <laughs> and where I find, and, I, and again, I'm not sure what over the years Jews for Jesus in particular as a group has done, but when you speak more broadly about Messianic Jews, um, I don't like it when they advertise in the yellow pages under synagogues. Right. I don't like it when um, when Mike Pence calls someone up to be his rabbi, who it turns out is a Messianic Jew. And I think, not actually not a rabbi. rabbi. <laughs> and not a rabbi, even in Messianic Jew, a defrocked <laughs> Messianic Jew, um, because I think fundamental to all of these religions is honesty and truth. And they know and we know that they know and they know that we know that they know <laughs> that um, they are playing a little bit of a shell game with a lot of people who broadly and correctly think of Christians as having become a different tradition from, from Jews. So, um, you know, I, 
I re yeah, I, I dislike and resent a lot of what they do publicly. That, I'll, but I will say that leaves like a couple friends of mine who aren't Messianic Jews in a weird place because they would say, we believe that we, you know, and by the way, Judaism considers them Jews because of course, if they have maternal lineage, if your mother's Jewish and reformed Jews would say, if either parent's Jewish, you're still Jewish. It's, you know, and you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. So <laughs> they're still Jews. As they say. <laughs> right? So. That was really rock and roll of you. Yeah, it was really rock. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Invoking the Eagles is always how to get in good with real rock people. So. <laughs> You know, so that does, I don't know what I want those friends of mine to call themselves, but I do know, do know that publicly presenting Would you say Jews, some of your best friends? I would not say some of my best Jews. friends. I would say some distant acquaintances. So here's the thing. I think that for most Jewish people, Messianic Jews is like, that's the line, right? Because, it's like Diet Coke. <laughs> because yeah. basically, if you're Jewish, what separates you fundamentally from Christians is like Christians believe that Jesus was the Messiah and Jews do not believe that. And so to hear that someone is, yes, I'm Jewish, I'm, you know, my mother, blah, blah, blah. And I also believe Jesus is the Messiah. And you're like, those two things actually fundamentally don't make sense See, to a lot is, of Jewish people. That is what has always fascinated me so profoundly because I think it actually, my own personal distaste aside, I think it actually shines a really interesting light on this question of so many Jews seeing themselves as some kind of cultural group, first and foremost, for whom belief, faith, theology, you know, the, the actual core of, of this religion, if I may, uh, is irrelevant. Uh, and so Are you in, talking in about some, bagel Jews? <laughs> that uh, would be the name. And if they were bagel Jews, may I suggest that they be Bialis or <laughs> bagel shop Jews? Uh, but but it kind of is interesting to me to watch people say it without skipping a beat because of course you could be a part of the Jewish people and also believe in Christ the Redeemer and my my head spins, uh, but I think it's an interesting. Are you saying commentary. that they're a they get away with it because, in your opinion, Jews don't observe enough like that. This, like, is there I am a very condemnation simple of Jews Jew. in that too? I, I can't perceive, I, I understand the, the peoplehood, or as Mark likes to put it, the family aspect pretty well, but I, I cannot begin to conceive of Judaism without the faith. Uh, you know, to me it is, if nothing else, also, not to say personally, predominantly a religion. Uh, and so that is very confusing to me that anyone would choose to look at it. I, I can understand that Jews would say, look, I, I acknowledge that there are these commandments I don't wish to observe right now, but I have a very warm, strong feeling for the family, and you know, I think that's great. Uh, but if someone says, okay, look, I, I'm keeping the family part, but also, have you heard of Jesus? I'd be like, right, well, you know, there's, he has a family too. He, they're a great family. They've I mean, achieved is, a lot. And I do think, I'll just... There are a lot of them in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's an amazing question, you're the, and I think you're the first Gentile who's ever asked us about this, and I'm so, a little surprised after 150-odd episodes, and it's a great question. Um, I will say that I think one reason a lot of Jews feel particularly squishy about Jews for Jesus is because we know that when they confront us, you know, at spring break or in the strip club or wherever they come to find lost Jewish souls, uh, I did once meet someone on spring break. No, spring break, spring break, from? spring break, spring break. They're all over Daytona Beach on spring break. I know that someone here knows what I'm talking about. They come up to you on the beach. Um, and one reason we feel squishy is because when they start invoking biblical arguments and they really know theology and we as largely secularized people have, have no arguments against them and they know our tradition better than we do, um, we feel like about yay big. But here's my thing. It's like, you have Christianity. Like, that's done really well. Like, give, leave us with our, th like. You got the good holidays. Like, why do you need both? Yeah, you our, get Christmas. Our songwriters <laughs> write good songs for you on your holidays. 
Just say you've just declared victory and close up shop. <laughs> Terry Stewart, thank you so much for being our Gentile. Thank you. <laughs> That was the three unorthodox hosts, me, Liel, and Stephanie, on stage at the Mandel Jewish Community Center in Cleveland, Ohio, with former Rock and Roll Hall of Fame head honcho, Terry Stewart. Hey, listeners, before we get to the Mazel Tovs, uh, a few reminders. First of all, please do subscribe to our show. Go on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever. Hit the subscribe button. Get your automatic downloads. Uh, it helps us. It helps you. It means that you never miss an episode. Uh, so go go do that. Before you do anything else, before you take it, wait, don't, don't sip that coffee until you subscribe to Unorthodox. Uh, remember that you want to get tickets to our live show. Remember that you want to be in the Facebook group or getting the newsletter written by our own Liel Leibowitz. And also, you know what? Give us some mail or call us. We love hearing from you. Mail can come to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Call us. Leave us some voicemails. We love hearing your voice and playing the messages that way. We're at 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-Israel Woodstock. The Mazel Tovs this week are courtesy of the live audience at the Houston Jewish Community Center. We were down there right after we were in Cleveland, and uh, we turned the microphone over to those wonderful Houstonians who had some terrific Mazel Tovs. Have a listen. So listen, um, before we wrap up, we do our Mazel Tovs, but we thought we would turn the Mazel Tovs over to you. So instead of us having three Mazel Tovs, are there three people here who, and a Mazel Tov is you get up and say, I'd like to wish a Mazel Tov to so-and-so on the occasion of such, or so-and-so for accomplishing this, or whatever. Are there three people here, or we'll one or two? And then we need the to do, you need to do it on mic, because we're going to include yeah. it in the episode. We hope to include the Anything. episode. Anything. Uh, hello, my name is Monica Hoffman, and I'd like to wish a mazel tov to my daughter-in-law, Samantha, who just started this week working as an assistant religious school director in Phoenix, Arizona. Wow. Mazel tov, Samantha. Oh, we have two here and then two there. The birthday boy. Hi, my name is Adam Kruger. I want to wish a mazel tov to my brother, Noah Kruger, and his wife, Danielle, who uh, this Friday are moving into their house after being flooded out of oh. Hurricane Harvey. Um, mazel tov. And he's an amazing guy. Lovely guy. Um, so I want to say mazel tov to the JCC for putting on a wonderful book fair. Um, And to the beautiful young lady to my right, who has been putting on the actual bookstore for the last 17 years. <laughs> and now, and now, uh, I want to wish a muzzle, say muzzle tov to my friend Sarah Siroda, my Jewish friend whose couch I have been crashing on for the past two months. <laughs> uh, she just passed comp exam, so she can graduate with her master's degree from Georgetown. Mazel Mazel Tov, Sarah. Sarah. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Houston, and Mazel Tov to you. We can't wait to be back. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. We often come to you live. If you want to book us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. For Unorthodox swag, that is clothing or you know, onesies, laptop cases, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. We are on Instagram at unorthodox podcast. We're on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join the Facebook group. 
Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Kira Telushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert-Evoy. The artwork on our website for Unorthodox is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams, and our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by the rabbinic team at Washington Hebrew Congregation. We're excited to come there on January 15th. That would be Rabbis Bruce Lustig and Susan Shankman, Aaron Miller, Eliana Fischel, Cantor Mikhail Manovich, Cantor Susan Fortnick. Holy cow, there are a lot of you down there. Rabbinic supervision by all of you all. And we come to you from Argo Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs>